I'm non-tenant, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Michael and I have been pondering the psychology and pathologies of white knights for some time, and this is of necessity. We're viciously opposed by them on a regular basis, and we have to know our enemy. But this knowledge is important for anyone who is seeking to reform the church, because the white knight mentality is as ubiquitous as it is destructive. It's prevalent not only in the younger generations, but also among boomers. In fact, it seems to be an especially hard mindset to kick for older pastors who are otherwise very sound on gendered piety and biblical patriarchy. In this podcast, I'm going to share some general thoughts on the psychology of white knights, and especially on how it arises, because understanding the root of the problem is important to dealing with it. The white knight mentality seems to be, fundamentally, a kind of arrested development, where a man fails to properly detach from the maternal world of childhood. This is usually caused by a weak or absent father, and or an overbearing or needy mother, which leads to one of two opposite problems, either a failure to launch, or launching too early. And paradoxically, these can sometimes occur together in the same man. Now, what follows in this podcast are not scientific observations. We have no sociological data to support them, nor have we conducted any surveys. They are simply reflections on patterns of behavior and what seems to cause them. So problem one is a failure to launch. The first manifestation of not detaching from the maternal world is simply a difficulty or a refusal to definitively enter the world of men. Usually this happens when the white knight's father fails to model masculine outward-facing dominion, or isn't a strong enough force in his life to bring him along into the masculine world against the retentive nurture of his mother. This is exacerbated by the lack of -of coming-of-age rituals in modern society, The absence of defined points at which boys become men, combined with a lack of fatherly guidance, leaves them foundering in a Peter Pan state where manhood becomes an alien condition, that so-called adulting that millennials are always talking about. This is dire consequences for white knights. The first of these is a low-grade fear of masculinity and manhood as the other. White knights have trouble identifying with the masculine. They tend to be risk-averse, and prefer security to freedom. They'll also rationalize their distaste for traditionally masculine pursuits, like football or hunting, as a kind of enlightenment, placing themselves in their minds into a more evolved category than their Neanderthal brethren. If this sounds rather like a nerds versus jocks thing, that is not entirely wrong. Ultimately, however, this is a low-grade fear and loathing of their own natures, which makes white knights emotionally unstable, and tends to manifest in depression, anxiety, and self-destructive behaviors. Secondly, you often see socially feminized behavior. Because they identify with the feminine, and did not learn to enter or at least fully embrace the masculine world, white knights tend to eschew agonistic discourse in favor of more covert modes of interaction. This is especially true in real life, where confrontation is physically intimidating. This causes them to instinctively deal with threats through subterfuge and ostracization, rather than through confrontation and competition, and it makes them very afraid to be ostracized in turn. It also results in a skewed ability to assess threats in the first place. Because they prioritize herd integrity over gaining mastery, 
challenges or disagreements are not seen as an opportunity to sharpen iron, but rather as a danger to the harmony of the group. White knights would rather have a veneer of unity enforced through social hegemony than a true bond of unity forged through struggle. They are fundamentally cliquey. Thirdly, you see prioritization of feelings over facts. The issues that I've just discussed, in turn, leads to filtering truth claims, and especially ones with moral import, by how these truth claims make the White Knight feel, and especially by how they affect the mood of some in-group, rather than by their correspondence to objective standards. The question of whether something is right or wrong, true or false, becomes reduced to the question of whether it upsets or pleases the people at the top of the White Knight's social hierarchy. And this leads into another problem, which is female affirmation seeking. All of these impulses lead to an intense dependence on female approval for the white knight's own sense of self-worth and self-security. It's an external locus of control where every woman is potentially like a surrogate mother and must be deferred to and defended accordingly. But of course, perversely... This must be synthesized with the White Knight's sex drive, which is generally vigorous like any man's, so he instinctively understands the male burden of performance, and he thirstily performs for the attention of any and every woman he finds at all attractive. Even if he marries, his pathologies compel him to continue performing. As much as he's outraged by the idea of adultery, he cannot help seeking the affirmation of other women. For more socially able white knights, this often manifests in the form of oddly close female friendships. For more omega personalities, it often manifests in irrationally promoting feminism and virtue signaling online. There is a confounding factor in this dynamic. Because of his effeminacy, the white knight is to some degree sexually loathsome to women. Indeed, the more he tries to prove his worthiness by placing her at the center of his orbit, the less masculine he seems and so the less sexually interesting. This does, of course, cover a spectrum. Some white knights are naturally alpha men who have been feminized and tend to be able to rely on their physical magnetism and natural charisma to command some interest from women, even as those women find themselves kind of conflicted about their interest. At the other end of the spectrum is the fat neckbeard feminist who would have trouble being attractive to women regardless of his psychology. But whatever his natural assets... The White Knight's conditioned effeminacy is a handicap to his desire for female affirmation. Affirmation which reaches its fullest expression, of course, in female sexual interest. And this creates a vicious cycle of frustration and desperation. Now, the second problem that can cause a White Knight is launching too early. So this is the second manifestation of the White Knight's failure to detach from the maternal world. And it takes the opposite form to not entering the world of men. Instead, he is forced prematurely to take on the masculine burden of performance in his family. We discussed this problem in our podcast episode that we did previously about son husbands with Ken Curry. Essentially, due to a weak or absent father plus a needy mother, the burden of performance falls on the young son's shoulders before he is ready for it. This seems to be a pathology more common to boomers. It conditions the white knight into a kind of martyr complex for women. All women are filtered through his view of his mother, around whom his world revolves. This too has serious implications. Firstly, schizophrenia about women's agency and abilities. The premature burden of performance stamps a childlike view of his mother onto the white knight's psyche. It is very messed up and very sad. 
She is in some ways a goddess to him, with goddess-like problems that he is permanently inadequate to solve. Because, you know, he's a child. This makes his grasp of women's agency very confused. On the one hand, they are higher beings deserving of greater reverence than men. On the other, they need a man, him, to protect them and provide for them. Women, in his mind, are paradoxically able to do anything a man can do, plus in heels, yet at the same time are also delicate flowers continually in need of saving. A perfect illustration of this is in how white knights will insist that women can enter and excel in masculine domains, but simultaneously insist that the rules of these domains be changed the moment they present challenges that the feminine nature is not suited to face. One high-profile example in our circles has been the demand that Amy Bird be taken seriously as a public theologian, but simultaneously never face vigorous criticism or answer hard questions. The White Knight acts erratically here because he has a deep-seated anxiety about living up to his childish understanding of the burden of performance, of saving the woman who is simultaneously the one looking after him. Another problem is pedestalization. More than a confused view of agency, the fundamental mindset of a White Knight extends into a kind of functional gyneolatry, the worship of women, where he does not actually conceive of women as sinners at all. Men are pigs with base appetites. Women are angels with a natural bent toward virtue. Men are grunts made for labor and hardship. Women are finer creatures. The natural inference here is that men are therefore essentially designed to minister to women's whims, which leads to a kind of willing servitude, a desire to save her from whatever situation she is in, regardless of how ridiculous. His implicit mentality is that whatever her plight, it must have been caused by other men, and because of the collectivist mindset that goes along with his feminization, this makes her problem vicariously his fault. This is part and parcel of how the servant leadership paradigm, which transforms leadership into servitude, has become the default and unquestionable view of complementarians. It is visible in everything, from the now standard tradition of the man kneeling before his girlfriend to propose, to marriage counselling, which implicitly assumes the husband is the sole problem, to the Duluth model, which is the domestic abuse model used by law enforcement, which has no category for domestic abuse against men. We even know of one pastor who demanded that a man in his congregation explain what his sin was that had caused his wife to commit adultery. Another problem is suspicion of other men. As much as the white knight views women as goddesses, he commensurately views all other men as probable devils. Any man who does not share his outlook is a threat to women, and therefore evil. For a man to challenge all men is a sure sign that he is an enemy, regardless of how justified the challenge is. Remember, this is a kind of arrested development. A white knight responds to challenges to women much as a child would respond to someone attacking his mother. Moreover, because of his collectivist mentality, to challenge any one woman is to challenge womanhood itself. Finally, there is the issue of catastrophization. The white knight has a fundamentally childlike outlook on women, and so he conceives of them as above him, but also beyond him. He buys wholeheartedly into the concept of the feminine mystique. As a child, his mother's problems seemed immense, larger than life, and certainly beyond question as authentic. Indeed, they defined his reality. Stuck in this immature way of thinking, all women's problems tend to be artificially magnified in his eyes, taking on unrealistic significance and requiring that he invest absurd amounts of his own ego into them. 
he is thus prone to credulously accept manifest fabrications, and also to greatly exaggerate even genuine issues. This simultaneously fuels the fantasy of himself as a special class of man uniquely willing to face these monsters. The Me Too and Believe Her movements could never have gotten off the ground without this mindset, let alone so rapidly gain steam. Thus the White Knight's natural masculine desire to protect women becomes twisted into a vicious parody of itself. Though he imagines himself one of the few men virtuous and courageous enough to stand up for women, he is in fact a tool, easily manipulated into wickedness and too craven to acknowledge his error. It is easy to think of this in terms of online keyboard warriors, because that is where the problem often arises, and so we can write it off as merely sad, but white knights live in the real world too, and they cause immeasurable damage because they often seek positions of power and authority, which they can use to further their agenda of protecting and pedestalizing women, while policing those rascally men who want to hurt them and keep them down. Since this is the lens through which they interpret reality, they can often fundamentally invert what is actually happening right in front of their eyes, putting evil for good and light for darkness. Even those who aren't in leadership positions are easily weaponized. Proverbs 31, 1-3 says, The words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. What, my son? And what, O son of my womb? And what, O son of my vows? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. The white knight is as pitiable as he is vile. He is unable to get the sexual interest he desires from women, and his world unnaturally revolves around them in a way that grates against the grain of his natural masculinity. But he also finds himself an outsider to the masculine world, even as his LARPing demonstrates that he longs to enter it. Because his psychology is so unnatural, so inimical to God's design for masculinity, over time it produces a lot of hidden resentment and loathing. This is directed inward toward himself, but also outward. His relationship with women especially is the worst kind of ambivalence. Responsibility without authority, desire without reciprocation, pedestalization without warrant. A disordered hierarchy is central to the war on gender, and the White Knight is an unwitting pawn in Satan's Western campaign. Thinking he is wise, he becomes a fool. Presuming himself a player, he is played. In giving his strength so thoroughly to women, making them his mental point of origin and his locus of control, which is contrary to nature, he suffers a cognitive dissonance that produces hateful behaviour. He directs this toward both women and men who will not affirm him and his views, and this cannot be healed without repentance. Unfortunately, repentance is exactly what we are lacking. A great deal of the collapse of the Western Church can be traced to a combination of white knights and overly influential women. This is both a historical reality, but also an ongoing pathology in most churches today. The white knight mentality is the one that has driven the collapse of Christianity in the West. The big Eva gospel industrial complex came about because traditional evangelical structures and institutions were and are led by psychologically compromised men. These are men ill-equipped to combat the progressive two-headed snake of feminism and wokeism. If we are to be shrewd as serpents in defeating the woke church, we must understand what went wrong. If we are to remain as pure as doves while doing so, we must avoid the errors of the past. So let me conclude with a brief explanation of how white knight psychology and female psychology synergize, I use the word advisedly, to undermine the church's strength and tear down her witness. Let's talk first about overly influential women. When women hold power in a church, whether officially or unofficially, two things tend to happen. 
First, they strive to include anyone agreeable, regardless of error. Second, they strive to exclude anyone disagreeable, regardless of orthodoxy. This is how women are designed, and it is good in its proper context, which is why the proper context for feminine influence is under masculine rulership. Women will always be tempted to remove discomfort out of a well-intentioned concern for the emotional well-being of others, but biblical Christianity requires discipline which initially causes discomfort. Listen to Hebrews 12.11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So temporary pain at the hands of church fathers yields the lasting peaceful fruit of righteousness. Men who faithfully imitate Jesus, the prophets and the apostles, are thus proficient at ruffling feathers. By contrast, however, false teachers are experts at being agreeable. This goes back to Eden with the smooth-talking serpent. In an ecclesial context, therefore, women's social instincts are roughly inversely proportional to ensuring orthodoxy. Women are likely to approve and endorse flatterers, hirelings, soft men, likely to disapprove and ostracize truth-tellers, shepherds, tough men. You probably know this from your own observation, even if you're unaware of the history of America's mainline denominations, and more recently the unfolding dramas in the OPC, the PCA, and the SBC. The outcomes are highly predictable because the basic sexual psychologies are always the same. As Johannes Voss notes, the most important element in the purpose of human life is glorifying God, while enjoying God is strictly subordinate to glorifying God. In our religious life, we should always place the chief emphasis on glorifying God. The person who does this will truly enjoy God, both here and hereafter, but the person who thinks of enjoying God apart from glorifying God is in danger of supposing God exists for man instead of man for God. To stress enjoying God more than glorifying God will result in a falsely mystical and emotional type of religion. End quote. Churches that are centered on making people happy, on avoiding discomfort, will always descend into mystical, emotional chaos. We exist to please God. We cannot find true religion on the false assumption of the opposite. Now let's talk about how white knights fit in. White knights enable and exacerbate the tendency of influential women to lead churches into error. Like women, men have natural instincts that, in their proper place, are good, but removed from it, quickly turn destructive. White knights take two of men's interrelated instincts to elevate women and to defend them, and abuse them to tear down what God has built. By twisting these natural impulses into a mindset that automatically seeks and defers to female approval, they come to derive their value from defending damsels in distress from evil forces. This desire is so strong that they are willing to engage in a fantasy to achieve it. Because they are caught in a childlike view of women on account of some arrested development, they will imagine evil women to be damsels and good men to be dragons. And this impulse of valiant deference defines them, and it is enormously destructive because it makes them easily aimed weapons for influential women. All these women have to do is take offense at another man and turn on the waterworks, and the white knights will unreflectively try to destroy him using any means necessary. And because they are nice guys and conditioned in using feminine tactics, this means they start with covert maneuvering and character assassination rather than direct confrontation and factual refutation. 
And the overall effect is a feedback loop of social instincts trained toward conforming everyone to agreeable, approved behaviours, rather than to true but offensive doctrines. The white knights become chump enforcers for a new orthodoxy. This is why men's sins are always attacked strongly from the pulpit, but women's sins are barely mentioned. Even the idea of specifically feminine sins will often engender outrage. It is why men's ministries are just women's ministries with bacon. It is why women can do anything an unordained man can do in confessionally complementarian denominations like the OPC and the PCA and the SBC. And if she gets popular enough to start doing what only ordained men are supposed to do, you had better not notice that she is unordained or a woman. This is why a cabal, or perhaps better put a clique of nosy biddies, have been able to establish an online whispernet to undermine the ministries of faithful men like Michael Spangler and Shane Anderson for the mortal sins of warning against the obvious feminism of women like Amy Bird and Rachel Green Miller, and preaching in response the standard historic position of the church throughout history. And it is why dozens of ministers have been willing to throw their support behind this whispernet without needing to acquaint themselves with the actual evidence. A woman is shrieking to be saved from a dragon. What more is there to know? Thus we find ourselves in the church effeminate, where men may check in their testicles with the usher in skinny jeans, sign a waiver promising not to make the women mad, and softly croon about their boyfriend Jesus, or they may be escorted to the door by a mob of valiant heroes who will defend milady's honour at any cost. They may lay aside their masculinity, or they may lay aside their Christianity. Of course, this is not a real choice. Christianity is innately masculine. But framing is everything. And so if you give men this choice, they will try to make it. Since it is a false dilemma, whichever way they choose to go, the outworkings are disastrous. And that is what we are seeing unfolding today. Most of our other podcast episodes are dedicated to fighting this and to reforming the church, and will continue to be. But I hope that this episode has been helpful in understanding where we're going and what is with this handbasket. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Don't larp it like white knights do actually do it, and be sure that all that you do is done in love. Hey.